Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual violence and sexual assault. My name is Darren Dorsey. I'm an expert in sexual violence prevention and organizational equity and co-founder of Rooting Movements, which is a consulting firm that helps organizations ensure that their internal practices are consistent with the values that drive the change they intend to make in society. In this podcast series, I'm speaking with Black leaders, advocates, and movement workers about their experiences in the movement to end gender-based violence. speaking with Theron Kigva Masud Vasti. Theron is a professor at the at Seattle Central Community College where she teaches communications. She's also a consultant for organizations that are looking to level up their projects. She helps organizations with community engagement, community building, program development, outreach, evaluation, equity, inclusion, and a number of other things. She's been in the movement for an incredibly long time. Theron was the former executive director of Communities Against Rape and Abuse in the Seattle area and also community organizer with the organization prior to her stint as executive director. She has an extensive knowledge of community organizing approaches to ending sexual and domestic violence. I'm looking forward to speaking with Theron and talking about her knowledge of the history of this movement and where we're at today and how we can better center black communities black advocates and black movement workers well i'm, I'm joined today by theron kigva masud vashti um and we're going to be talking a little bit about anti-blackness in the movement to end gender-based violence thank you so much for joining me today um i'm really excited to hear your experiences, your insight, and your perspectives. Um, to start off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and your role in the movement to end gender-based violence? Yes, thank you for having me um, be a guest. I'm, it's an honor to be able to talk about the movement and the work and our people. Uh, so my role currently, I am in academia. Like my major gig is teaching. However, I do lots of side gigs based on my work in the anti-violence movement. And so uh, I spent 10 years at Communities Against Rape and Abuse. Some of those years, the latter four of those years were spent in leadership at the organization as our uh, program director was um, went off to an amazing program in, um, in terms of grad school and you know become genius in the world. Me and another young person, or I'm, I mean, I wasn't young, but me and a young person that had worked with me on the Black People's Project, which was my program, uh, became the co-executive directors. As a result of these relationships, I still work with a number of these organizations today and Part of that work looks like supporting community building work at API and Chaya. 
other parts of that looks like me facilitating conversations around SA and DV, particularly as those kinds of issues come up in groups of folks that consider themselves community. So if there's an organization that has somebody who is a chronic sexual harasser or you know, something else is going on with regard to relationships and uh, sexual assault and domestic violence, then I'm often called to support those groups having that conversation. One other thing that I do currently that I'm really super stoked about is being able to use my skill sets to support Black folks in Seattle, to support Black people on like a personal level. So in the Black community in which I I exist. It is an arts community. It's a Pan-African community. And um, folks trust me when there is something happening in the community that's not cool. Folks will ask if I could come in and support conversations, right? And so I love to do that work. I do that work for free. I do charge organizations, especially organizations that are led by white people, or have lots of white people on staff, I charge those organizations good money because of the amount of emotional labor that actually goes into having conversations about um, anti-violence work in the, in the context of intersectionality, right? And so I'm doing all this teaching and then I have to do all this buffering and wear my armor and not take it personal. And so, yeah, pe- those groups pay me good money so that I can give my time to my people. I, I really appreciate that perspective because I think a lot of times people don't, don't factor in that, that reality that we are experiencing violence in our anti-violence work. Um, and that it, that requires strategies to mm-hmm. sort of buffer ourselves against. And, and it sounds like your strategy of, of this, comp- of uh, asking for compensation from these groups where you know you're going to experience more harm uh, sounds like a fitting one. Yeah, um, it works. <laughs> <laughs> so most of the folks that I'm speaking to for these interviews, they work in nonprofit organizations or they do consulting work full-time with nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of what you do is in the academic context. Can you tell us a little bit about what movement work looks like from that perspective? I think when people think about DVSA in academia, they think about public health, they might think about psychology, um, mm-hmm. but I think there, it can be much broader than that. So I, I'm curious on your, your perspective there. Uh, um, certainly. So currently in my position, so I'm a communications instructor and I have, um, like a whole history background involved in mass media, specifically radio, but, and I've been doing that since I was 16 years old. Right. Um, When I am teaching, especially my public speaking classes, where I have a section where we focus on narrative and the importance of story and how story, your own story or being uh, able to share a story helps the audience connect with you, because a lot of lessons that can be learned in stories that we share resonate with people right? And our people have those kinds of experiences themselves. 
I also am showing up, you know, from a very uh, specific situated position in my communication classes. So I'm really honest with my students when I tell them about my background because a lot of my stories and some of my examples are connected to anti-violence work. So I let my students know right away that I used to be an executive director at an anti-rape organization um, and that I support community around ending sexual assault and domestic violence. And what that has done is it, 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 it was so, I mean, it was so organic, but by just being honest and saying that, I find that students will identify me as a safe person and will often disclose because it's like the first time they felt seen, even in the context of talking about mass communications, right? Or public speaking. And when we get to narrative speeches in my classes, a number of students have shared their own story of SA. And it's interesting because they will say, this is the first time I'm actually saying, telling the story out loud, right? And it's really cathartic for them. And so, by, by giving people information of my background, I'm identifying as somebody who is an advocate and can be supportive and then people show up. And I love supporting my students wherever they are. And sometimes that looks like helping students safety plan or create a strategy. Sometimes it means sitting down with them and their siblings. Sometimes it means having conversations with um, male partners who are survivors of domestic violence um, or survivors of SA. And yeah, so that's one, I guess that's one really clear way that how I be in the world is impacting the multiple spaces in which I exist. In terms of from an academic perspective, I think that, um, you know, in the early days of Cara, we were all reading the fourth chapter of um, Pablo uh, uh, Ferrari, Ferrari's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, mm -hmm. right? And the fourth chapter was so critical to Cara's design because it had the conversation about the importance of organizing and also um, uh, the the, the, the work of informing, the work of critical thinking, being able to create space for conversations, to have um, uh, these discourses around SA and DV in order to strengthen the organizing. Mm -hmm. So for me, that, that what we consider academic, which is to be, you know, rigorous inquiry into particular theories, um, uh, you know, in a particular framework, within the context of a field, like all of those things, the, the, my academic perspective um, or habits lend themselves very easily to my organizing and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I've ever thought of SA or, or domestic violence strictly from an academic perspective, but being somebody who's in academic spaces, it's, it's, it's um, been helpful 
to name things for folks uh, who who want to talk about um, uh, experiencing violence in the context of schools or in the context of uh, some of my faculty peers, right? Mm-hmm. Also, it um, I use. It's interesting. There were, I recently was in a union meeting and this thing had played out where the chair of the union intentionally silenced a faculty member who was trying to make a point. And when we all got together after that whole event, I talked about the experience of a, like, how getting shut down like that is very triggering. And even that word triggering comes from the domestic violence and essay movement, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when I talked, I made an analogy between that experience and um, uh, organizing around sexual assault and how that gets shut down in ways, right? And this one, uh, one of my faculty members said, wow, I've never thought about how we experience um, violence at the school and in our union in the same way as people experience sexual assault and domestic violence. Like they were like, I have to sit on that for a minute because that's mm-hmm. real, right? Those patterns of power and control and abuse exist everywhere. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think people often don't think about violence on this continuum that it, it does exist in. And so they're looking for these these egregious acts of physical violence, but not recognizing what leads up to it, which is often this silencing, this this control and what you're describing here. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I do want to um, potentially point folks to an article that, that you um that you've contributed to, which is called uh, Pursuing a Radical Anti-Violence Agenda Inside, Outside a Nonprofit Structure. Um, I just wanna point folks to that so that if they're listening to this podcast and they wanna hear a little bit more context in your experiences or the, in general, the um, Seattle anti-violence history, then I, I really encourage folks who are listening to this podcast to even potentially pause right here and and read that and and revisit this um this interview this this conversation because i i do think it it provides a little bit of context for some of the experiences that you had doing this work um so with that said i'd like to talk a little bit about um nonprofit structures and how that plays into this movement so when you look at this movement from a historical perspective, um, mm-hmm. funders and, and government institutions influence over how resources are allocated has grown very quickly. You know, when you, when you look at this, this movement as over hundred, hundreds of years old, this, mm-hmm. is, this is a very recent thing. Um, what's the impact of this change, of this increase of, of government institution and, and funder influence and how can funders work to ensure that, that community-based organizations are the ones that lead this work? I have a really quick answer and then I have a, a less quick answer, right? Okay. So 
my quick answer is, if your foundation has the resources, give the resources, give the money to marginalized communities, um, give the money to black folks and trust the work will get done and stay out of the business. That's what I would say right away, mm -hmm. right? Because I think what happens in nonprofit structures is nonprofits become beholden to carrying out the work that the funder wants to see done, not give you the money that you know that you can use to address the work that you are seeing needs to be done and that your community is telling you needs to be done on the ground. So the, the, the nonprofit structure also is one where funders, it's as though they cannot fathom giving money to anybody outside of that structure because it is a it is a it is a top-down model of helping people. But when we are trying to do the radical work within sexual assault, domestic violence, when we're trying to get that work done, what we focus less on, or actually what we're trying to decenter are those power and control relationships, but nonprofit structures only reify not um, power and control relationships. Mm -hmm. So there is a manager that has to be, a, that is accountable to an executive board and that board is fiduciarily responsible for the organization. And so they have to be all up in how that money's getting spent. Um, and even with boards that try to be as hands off as possible, they still have a relationship with the manager that the other staff members, volunteers, um, contractors don't have mm -hmm. with them, right? And so I think nonprofit structures actually, I know it's a default model that people go to when they wanna start asking for funding, but that's because funding is set up to only work in a nonprofit way. Funders want to fund projects that they can then say, this is the work that we support. And if they don't, um, if you're not doing work that is important to their mission, then they start questioning uh, how you're using their money. And then that opens up a whole nother level of, stress and anxiety and trauma that is actually not the work of supporting communities and certainly not the work of spending money in useful ways to end violence. Mm -hmm. So I think nonprofit structures, I think it's a default mechanism, but I, I think they're as problematic as corporate structures and really nonprofit it just means that the money goes back into the organization, but there are CEOs, people who call themselves CEOs of nonprofit that pull down much money a year in salaries. Mm -hmm. And it's like, let's start there, you know? Let's like, what if the whole organization, you know, everybody got paid the same? And that was the case with CARA actually when it started. It was like, we recognized that not being a nonprofit facilitated the destruction of Seattle Rape Relief, which is what gave rise to the, the death of Seattle Rape Relief, gave rise to the birth of CARA. And 
the death of Seattle Rape Relief was caused by an interim director whose relationship with the board was not transparent to everybody else in the organization. So then when the, every, the volunteers showed up one day to staff the um, phone lines, the hotlines, the SA hotline, they showed up to doors that were chained shut. And as they began to question and do research as to what happened, it became apparent that the lack of transparency in that nonprofit facilitated um, the shutting down of the entire organization with no warning, no heads up to a lot of the people. So by the time folks start thinking about, well, if we're not going to try to save this organization, what are we going to do? When they said, we're going to start a new organization, it was transparency is key. Everybody has the same power. No one is in a hierarchy. And the board is accountable to the community, right? The board and staff are accountable to the community. And, and that worked for a while. Even with that, with that intention that was extremely insightful and did like deep work and reflective of uh, meaningful work could not hold up to um, what became the reality. Mm -hmm. And that is, if you have one person who is, uh, while other people are organizing in the field and you have one person that's trying to bring the money into the organization, trying to build relationships with coalitions, uh, um, trying to create visibility of marginalized communities, and that one person is doing all that work while everybody else is on the ground, then over time, it seemed as though the best way to address the issue, especially when asking for money, was to say, okay, we have an executive director instead of a program coordinator. We have, you know, the board recognize that the program director's uh, work is, looks really different. And so we need to reflect that in the pay, right? And it, 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 it was like, CAR did what it could but because of funding and the nature of nonprofit structures, we end up falling into the same habit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that you brought the, the structure of the board of directors into this because I think funders just add another layer of control on, on top of that. You know, the, the work is happening on the ground. Um, right. And then that those folks that are organizing that are doing that work then have to answer to this board of directors, as you pointed out, usually through an executive director, and there's mm -hmm. a, a lack of connection there. And I think there, there are ways to create an effective board of directors that, that really reflect the community. But oftentimes that's not the case. Oftentimes we've got bankers, we've got lawyers, we've got you know folks that can bring in funds, and, and that can be really disruptive to work happening that actually impacts the community in a, in a positive way. One thing that I want to highlight here is something that, that kind of connects to your specialty, which is, is narrative. And, and you pointed out how funders have this interest in, in themselves going out and being able to say, hey, here's what we support, here's what we fund. And I think there, there can sometimes be a gap when they're trying to push this narrative of what they fund okay. and the organization itself is trying to do some type of work in the community. And when right. these funders don't reflect that community, they might not understand the work. 
and then that you know I, I feel like there's there's something there that that, that causes a, a pretty significant barrier for for marginalized communities to get funding exactly the the thing is is that I find when people join boards, especially at nonprofits, for the most part, in my lived experiences, people want to do good in the world, Mm -hmm. right? So they join boards out of the desire to participate in doing something good in the world. Once people are in the system and they start doing that board work, it's not that that value of doing good in the world goes out. What happens is that because of the nature of hierarchy within nonprofits and the, 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 the notion that the board is, because they are fiduciarily responsible, is the, um, is, are the people who, where the buck stops, that then creates a situation where board members start to feel themselves a little bit too much, right? They start to think without them, the organization can't do what it does. Um, and then they start to try to make decisions that may not be supported by the staff, such as maybe you know focusing on getting rid of an executive director that everybody really appreciates and loves, but the executive director themselves pushes back too much on the board. Right. So then the board wants to organize to get rid of them. The staff is trying to fight to save them. And at the end of the day, the board gets to get rid of them based on the fact that they're the ones that are fiduciarily responsible to the organization. And so um, the people who initially joined the board to end up doing good in the world have then become themselves part of the mechanisms that harm. And when you have harm happening, at the top of an organization, it's only going to trickle down. And it will look like, with your staff, it will look like fatigue, rage, um, revisited trauma. uh, um, uh, And and then that in and of itself makes it difficult for people to show up fully in their work, even though we do. We do. But it's like, you know, it's like a a way of slowly dying. I think that's why so many people that do this work end up getting out. Right, they burn out. They do, mm-hmm. they do. It is, it, is, it is exhaustive on your mind. It is exhaustive on your heart. It's exhaustive on your whole body. And I, and I think often the narrative is that people burn out in this work inherently because they're spending time talking to survivors and processing, but I, I appreciate this this conversation because what we're actually talking about is the the structures in which we do this work, the structures in which we connect with survivors, provide advocacy and support and other services Mm -hmm. is what burns us out, not the act of connecting with survivors in itself. Exactly, exactly. And those structures are still patriarchal in nature. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if you have a queer organization led by women of color, if they are stuck in a patriarchal system of power and control and hierarchy. Absolutely. And and that's the thing is that funders seem less interested in rethinking structure. They are less interested in rethinking structure because they just want to be able to help the people. But part of the helping the people 
is supporting and believing and trusting the folks that are doing the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also funders can do some advocacy themselves. They are, they are connected to these institutions that, that are even higher up. I know yeah. I had a situation in I believe late 2019 where, where I hosted a, a training for folks who did sexual violence prevention in the state of Washington. And um, we called it a retreat because we needed, we, we wanted these folks to connect with each, with each other. We wanted them to, to rest, to breathe, because we yeah. know that they're in these nonprofit environments, that they're not making a lot of money, that they're mm-hmm. under the control of these, these various structures and, and whatnot. And that's, that's just their job. They're also dealing with whatever else they're dealing with in their, in their lives. And so we, we had this retreat it went fantastic. The the um, feedback was was across the board wonderful, and the the one point of feedback I got back from my grant manager after that was, "Oh, we can't use the word retreat anymore. They don't like that. That that they they had questions about that. They weren't sure what that means. They think that that you oh. are actually doing productive work." And I'm like, "Oh my okay. god." So why don't you challenge them on this? You know, like as a funder, you know, you're the one that's in the room with them. You're the one right. who should understand what this work looks like and, and the, the importance of having a retreat for people that do sexual violence prevention. Um, right. But so often I see that kind of, I, I even for a number of years saw um, folks saying, hey, we can't, we can't exactly say that this is a person of color space where white people are not invited. We can't exclude white people. So just say it's a, a black people space, but we have to provide an equal, um, but separate <laughs> opportunity for white folks to receive education. And I'm like, well, honestly, y'all should just get sued about this and, and fight that fight as opposed to forcing us to let white folks into our spaces or to create oh equitable God. spaces for white folks. Um, but I think so often there's this hesitancy for funders to actually connect with the work that they're supporting and then advocate for the actual work and, and what people on the ground are, are, are looking to do. Yes, so many nails hit, dead on the head. It's just that, it's just what you said. It's, it's, it's astounding to me how little people with money trust people who are not Caucasian. Mm-hmm. period oh can you tell us again what you're doing can you do that a little less and do this other thing a little more can we be um can we create equal space and white people come into the room like if i hear the word if i hear like that term that idea the statement that it's an equitable space to make white people feel uncomfortable. I'm like, this is why the conversation about race in America has to stop being so damn tepid because mm-hmm. people aren't getting it. That's mm-hmm. not how race, that's not how oppression works. Absolutely not how oppression works. Exactly. You know, I have this experience and even in my classrooms when I push back on specifically white male students. When I push back on white male students, next thing you know, I'm get, I'm in a conversation with my dean. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why? Because isn't it our job not to push back? And, you know, I, you know, 
deans come and go. And I, one conversation, this one conversation I remember having was, no, that's not our job. Our job is not to push back. Our job is to give them as much information as they need so that they can make an informed decision. Like you are not there to push, you are there to educate. And I'm thinking at what point did not pushing at a college level of education become harmful or become the right. thing that we don't do? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so when this idea that you're pushing, when we start pushing back on funders, I'm sorry. I'm just having, I'm just like situations that I know about are exploding in my head Mm -hmm. right now. You know, there's so many examples of brown people like saying, you know what? Keep the money. Right. Exactly. We'll we'll figure this out ourselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's what my co-director and myself actually came to the conclusion of. We have to stop accepting city funds because it's not going to help. Like they want to be all up in our Kool-Aid in this way that's exhaustive and disrespectful and not in service of good for our people. So y'all can keep your money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've seen it. I've been there and and that, and the the alternative is that that, that money still goes to somebody. Exactly. but, But not to that community, not to that organization that's connected to that community Instead, it's often that that sort of default organization that is often white-led, white-board, and um, uh, kind of the traditional nonprofit. And so then we see these cycles perpetuate. Uh, yes. Um, so I, I have a couple uh, a couple more questions before we go. Um, okay. One being uh, that you know it's it's March of 2022 right now. Uh, about two years ago in 2020. A lot of organizations sort of became aware of this thing called anti-blackness and, and racism yeah. and made a commitment to interrupting it. And sometimes specifically around interrupting anti-blackness. We've since seen how that's gone. I, I think it's one thing that I, I often point people to is public opinion around Black Lives Matter and other related issues from, from 2020 to now. And, and seeing the, the backlash that's that's occurred there. Um, what do you think organizations that want to move in this direction and want to continue to move in this direction and sustain it need to know and understand? That's a good question. Um, so for my own mental health, I have a cadre of Black folks that I go to when I need support, right? And they have a variety of skill sets and experiences and work in different fields. Um, Some of them are super close friends, other folks, you know, a little bit more extended out in my concentric circle of community. But one thing that we all freaking agree upon is that the world is Mm anti-Black. The freaking globe is anti-Black. And it is never so apparent than situations like now when we are looking at what Russia is doing to the Ukraine and we see then the deprioritization of refugees who are in that country who, who are members of African countries, right? Or who come from uh, Caribbean countries and how they are deprioritized in this 
in, in the efforts to get people out. You have people, you know, leadership in Poland talking about, we don't want Muslims here, which is just code for, we don't want black people here. And you have groups of African students, people of African descent with their babies getting rejected off of trains. And so when I think about anti-blackness in the movement, I can't help but to be realistic that we are dealing with anti-blackness in the world. And uh, hold on a second. Let me pull back. <laughs> Let me pull Take back. Your a Take okay. your time. Take your time. Anti blackness is something that the globe perpetuates for its own sense of superiority. Whenever you want to feel better about yourself, all you have to do is punch down, if you will, right? And I find that on a local level in the anti-violence movement, the work that I did when I started doing, like when I was an employee being paid full time to do this work, the, the anti-Blackness was thicker, if you will. I will say that Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd protest, I think helped shift some of that anti-Blackness on a global level even, mm -hmm. right? And so when we see people in South Korea organizing, um, it feels like the local folks um, the local Asian activists who are also doing um, Black Lives Matter work is connected, right? That when we see our Latino sisters and brothers speaking up and standing up for Black Lives Matter, that, that they too are recognizing um, that there needs to be some support like, so how do we as marginalized people support one another? So I find that one of the, one of the ways that I cope with anti-Blackness and anti-violence movements is that I partner, I seek out, I find other marginalized people who understand the, the, the particular ways in which this country's racism is harmful mm -hmm. to Black people much in the way that when I am sitting in spaces with native folks, I am recognizing that we also live in a world that is anti-indigenous, mm -hmm. right? And so then when we can see one another and recognize the world that's creating anti-indigenous stuff, whether it's policies, war, <laughs> or just straight up, gentrification rape mass rape and murder like like when we recognize each other that's when we can advocate for one another in spaces so i might not be in all the spaces with my asian sisters and brothers that are doing anti-violence work but i know and trust that they are there pushing back on anti-blackness in their spaces mm -hmm. right the same right. way i'm pushing back on anti-asian in my spaces right, with Black folks. And I think the best work is done by people of color, mm -hmm. queer people of color, 
queer people of color with disabilities. Like, I think the best work is done when we are all organizing. Right. I, I'm, I'm all for allies leveraging their privilege to, um, to help uh, elevate the, the uh, work and uh, the need for resources to support um, uh, the experiences of, of brown people in anti-violence work. But if you're not, I'm gonna just be real. If you, and maybe this is a little risky at this time in our American history, considering where we are with um, <clears throat> Black Lives Matter, you know, and war, mm -hmm. but as a white person, I got all the allies in the world I need. I need a soldier. Mm -hmm. I need you to be willing to risk your job. Right. Telling your boss that that's racist. Exactly. I need you to get the white people in your organization to hold those power brokers accountable. That's what I need. I don't need your smile, your hugs, your sorries. Um, yes, we're out there, fist up, Black Lives Matter. If when you go back to work, you sit by and you watch your bosses create policies in situations that mess up the lives of Black folks and other marginalized people, period. Mm -hmm. So if you're not anti-Black in your life, bye. We're not having a conversation. You call yourself an ally, but you let anti-Blackness happens in your presence, you do you, boo, way the hell over there. If you're not up here in these front lines getting bloody with me, then we're done. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a conversation I, I often have, particularly with, with Black folks where, you know, we're, we're tired of the, the allyship that requires no sacrifice whatsoever. Even, even going back to this question, a lot of these organizations committed to interrupting anti-Blackness, but they're still white-led, you know? And so it's like, at, at what point does, does somebody say, hey, this is going, for me to uplift Black folks, it's going to cost me some of my privilege, some of my power that I've gained through my privilege. Right. Um, I think there's this, this idea that, that yes. um, we want to uplift Black folks, but keep white folks exactly where they are. Exactly. When the fact of the matter is that, that white folks have gotten where they are in our society, in our organizations, through oppressing, dominating, controlling Black people. And so how do we, you know, how do, how do we maintain your position while we become lifted up when that's how you got there in the first place? Okay. I mean, especially if you're in an environment where other people of color are white passing, mm -hmm. right? It's even harder. I, I mean, I worked for an organization doing anti-violence work. Um, and I tell you, I remember sitting down one day with this woman in the organization who was considered a leader, was paid accordingly. Um, they weren't the executive director, but, you know, blah, 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 blah about their work in the organization. I told that woman to her face that what she was saying to me was racist and problematic and tried to get her to recognize it. And she was like, but I don't know how to hold you accountable. If, if I can't talk to you about this, it's like, you're holding me accountable? You're trying to hold me accountable to what? Mm -hmm. Exactly. For me doing the work the way I think it best get done 
or for me not jumping through your hoops because you're still attached to your whiteness and the power that it affords you. You know what I'm saying? It's a matter of execution. And you don't like my execution, say that. Exactly. And you can say, you're executing in a way that isn't going to work for this organization. That's a lot more honest conversation than just telling me that, that what I'm doing is not what the organization is asking and I need to be accountable to the project of the organization. No, I need to be accountable to Black folks. I need to be accountable to my people. And that starts with my community. That starts with my household. I don't need to be accountable to those white folks. I don't need to be accountable to none of y'all up in here. Am I doing the mission? Am I doing the work? Then what are we talking about? Exactly. You know, exactly. and ultimately I left that organization when I was, when I joined that organization, brown people were like, girl, how are you doing it? What's it like over there? Because the organization has a history mm. of, of not serving people of color, not serving black folks, being anti-black and being anti-Latino, right? And, 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 and long after I was gone, there were some black folks there that were like, you know what, we're done. And they managed to get the executive director fired because the organization itself was a cult of personality. And that kind of anti-black racism was coming from the top down. And, you know, but that is not what's happening all over the place. Right. You know, people, and it took a lot that those Black people had to do a lot, meeting with board members, meeting with each other, meeting with me, you know, trying to organize other people who have worked there in the past. What's your experience? Can you tell them this? Like, it was just such a mess. And it's so crazy because it's an anti-violence organization, yet Black people have to put the work on hold because we're being uh, um, um, mistreated and oppressed within the organizations mm -hmm. that are trying to end violence at the hands of white folks. You know? Right. And, and I think, you know, the thing is that we, we all hear these stories, know these stories of Black folks experiencing anti-Blackness in these anti-violence organizations. But how many Black people who've had these experiences can't talk about them? Exactly. So, exactly. so many of these stories are untold. So many of these stories are, are workers who just one day um, the, the organization said, hey, this person's no longer with us. We can't talk about it. <laughs> you know, like we have all right. seen that and we've seen that in our anti-violence organizations. And oftentimes it's that person going to trying to hold someone accountable and saying, hey, I'm experiencing racism. I'm experiencing anti-blackness. I'm experiencing homophobia, these, these, these types of oppression right. in this organization. And the organization probably goes to their board of directors that has this fiduciary duty and says, hey, this is a risk. This is a liability. And instead of yep. getting yep. to the root of that problem and ensuring that this liability never happens again, what they say is, Let, let's pay this person a settlement, ensure that they can't sue us, let's right. do an NDA so that they can't talk about this, this doesn't reflect well on us. So instead of dealing with that problem of racism that, that is uh, institutionalized in this organization, instead we're, we're institutionalizing silence, we're, we're telling you know, Black folks that they can't talk about their experiences of, of anti-Blackness in these organizations. 
And this exactly. happens so often. It really does. I mean, it, 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 it um, oh gosh, I had this epiphany just a second ago as you were talking about um, anti-Blackness in its organizations and the silencing. The reality is that anti-Blackness is deadly. Anti-Blackness kills us mm -hmm. because when you are in anti-Black spaces, you are faced with the macro and micro aggressions, assaults on a regular level, on a regular basis, not only from your house to your job, right? Or your house to the community, but within the organization itself. And when we are in constant fight or flight, if we're producing all this like, overproduction of cortisone and on a daily basis over time studies have shown that the overproduction of cortisone has a negative impact on the heart because it contributes to the hardening of arteries so literally it's not because i'm in a bad mood that i'm calling out your anti-blackness i'm it's killing me right and I, I think that's what people really need to understand is that, that anti-Blackness in this movement has killed people. There, there are workers who, who are no longer here with us that would be in this movement fighting alongside us today had they not experienced anti-Blackness. There, there are workers who signed this NDA, you know, and, you, and you're, you're put in this position where it's like you're in a hostile workplace you're trying to ensure that accountability happens and then you're presented with this choice. Mm -hmm. You can take this settlement and relieve us of our liabilities that's that's from your discrimination and, and be silent mm -hmm. about this. <clears throat> or you can continue to work in this hostile work environment and continue to be killed by this anti-Blackness. Right. Or you can quit voluntarily and receive no unemployment, no assistance or anything. And oftentimes these settlement amounts are, are not anywhere near what, what they should be to, to actually ensure that that person is cared for, that they um, have their needs met, that they're, they have the, the time and space to, to process and heal from this right. and then find another job. And I have seen people get lost in that process and lose their house, lose their, their, oh you know, their family, their resources, et cetera. And that's this movement. That's, that's this yes. movement to end gender-based violence has put people on the streets. And I think that's what, you know, folks don't recognize the gravity of, of this situation. <laughs> right, right. We're out here fighting for our lives doing anti-violence work. Mm -hmm. From the organizations that we're supposedly working for. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, you know, one thing to, to mention is that we often ask these questions when we're coming in. We'll say, okay. How are you around, around these issues? What does your staff make up? And oftentimes it's like, okay, this is perfect timing because we're actually trying to really address anti-racism and, and institutionalize that in our organization. Come along. We, we want you to interrupt these things. But then once yeah. you get in there, once you begin to, to do that, there's a recognition that that might not exactly be what they actually wanted. Right. They wanted to say they're doing it. They wanted to have a brown, a black face there. So it looks like they're doing it. But at the end of the day, they're not doing it because it means that they have to give up their privilege and they're not trying to do that. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're, we're running out of time here. I think we can okay. talk all day. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. Um, 
before we go, um, yes. how can people reach you? How can people learn about your work and, and what you're doing and, and potentially uh, work with you in, in this capacity? Um, that is a really good question <clears throat> because I don't, um, I, I'm, I'm the kind of person people reach word of mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, fortunately, because I've been around a long time and then folks will call me or send me a text or DM me and say, hey, uh, this organization wants to reach out to you or this group needs to talk to you. So I think the best way though to reach me, if you really want to get in touch with me is to contact me through my day job, which is Seattle Central Community College, right? And if you go to the arts, humanities and social services department and you ask to speak to Professor K, they'll go, oh, you mean Theron? Here, let me, let me, get you her her email i can also put my email in the chat okay. so um i'm very responsive to uh folks that send me emails i can an another way people can reach me i guess i, I should drive traffic to my linkedin <laughs> my linkedin i'm there under an essential bridge so that's the name of myself as a, a personal business mm -hmm. so an essential bridge. You can reach me through LinkedIn. Yes. All right. We'll go through uh, Seattle Central Community College or an essential bridge on LinkedIn. So between all of those, I think folks will be able to hopefully figure yeah. it out and, and get in touch with you. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much, Theron. I, I really appreciate your time and this this conversation. And I, I really think that, that folks in the movement are going to benefit a lot from, from hearing this conversation. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're an incredible interviewer. And I love that you got to all the questions, even with my chatty self. All right. Well, that does it for today's podcast. Thank you for joining us for this conversation on anti-Blackness and the movement and gender-based violence. We encourage you to reflect deeply on what you've heard, what you've learned today, and think about how you can implement that in your communities and your organizations. We also welcome you to reach out to some of the guests in this series of podcasts for organizational technical assistance, consulting, training, and other services. If you haven't already, please do check out the rest of the podcasts in this series. This series of podcasts on anti-Blackness and the movement to end gender-based violence includes five conversations that are five different perspectives in this movement five different experiences. I think what you'll find is that sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. There's something to gather from each and every single one of them. And again, we encourage you to listen to the entire series of this podcast.